Craig Hoffman. We are revamping the podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Uh, we don't have a name yet, and that's okay. We have a team of crowdsourced, intelligent, creative people, and soon we'll have a name. Uh, here's what we do have. I'm going to do this quickly because we are basically retooling the podcast. When I say we, I, people that told me this is a good idea, instead of deep dives into one topic, I'm going to basically do an hour of radio. And so we're going to have four segments, four topics. Sometimes it might be less topics, and we'll spend two segments worth of time on one. Uh, For instance, we're going to start doing two a week. Friday, probably going to be pretty NFL draft heavy. Uh, Damon Mendelar, CBS Sports Radio, going to join me on Friday. Today, I have two guests, Brian McNally, 106.7 The Fan, my friend from here in D.C., talking Redskins, what they're going to do and what they did already with Josh Norman. Tim McMahon, talking Mavs. So basically, if you followed me at any point, or at some point, I should say, uh, during the last three years of my career, this podcast is for you. Uh, And that's how we're going to do it. We're going to do an hour of radio show, twice a week. That's the goal. Um, I'm excited about it. It's I've recently talked to some people that really got me kind of reinvigorated. Um, and not that I wasn't excited about the stuff I was doing, but really uh, focused. And I'm excited to do a radio style thing. I think this is a good idea. Um, hopefully, whether it's this episode or future episodes, people that have radio jobs hear it and listen and go, yeah, we want to put that on our air. And bluntly, that's what this is for. Like, yes, this is fun for me to stay active, but also I'm tired of sitting here and I want to work again and I want to get paid for talking about sports and I love talking about sports and it's fun but getting paid is fun too so that's what we're doing and with that in mind I've already done way too long of an intro because radio doesn't have long intros but since we're changing up this thing then uh, I figured that people should know because hopefully this is an audience that's going to build all right An NBA draft thought coming up at the end of the show and a tale of an awesome Sunday. But first, I want to start with this. At some point, we as men, the people in the position of privilege, therefore the people who are in a position to do something to make things better, have to stop treating us like it's people on the Internet. Now, let me give you an example of why I feel like we have to stop treating this just simply like it's people on the Internet. So I started doing a job doing local radio in 2008. And when I got there, a lot of people reacted kind of violently to the idea that I was going to be on the radio. I mean, it got what y'all like to call it. It got a little racial, right? People were doing those things. And see, something that happened, the guy behind the, on the backside of the website told me is that he started looking at who some of these people were because they'd leave these comments and then he'd have the email addresses that were registered to him. Hey, man, you out here thinking that this is just some, like, disaffected person in his mother's basement or something like that? Like, maybe it's some of those people. You know what else some of those people do? Work at law firms. That's Bomani Jones, the right time, Bomani Jones on ESPN Radio. And the reason I want to talk about that is not so much the subject matter of what Bomani talked about and had talked about in a much longer 10-minute segment. Um, I tweeted it this morning at Craig Hoffman, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And... It's the reaction to that tweet that's interesting to me because obviously what Balmani said is right. Um, Women get treated like trash on the internet by people on the internet. And for some reason, there's a large group of people, and I've talked about this for years. We dismiss people on the internet as if they're not people. Like, those are real people. They're awful people who thinks some kind of anonymity uh, behind a keyboard 
makes them able, uh, it's human to say whatever they want, that's asinine. Like, if you, uh, you talk people differently about people in front of their face, but to, to say some of the stuff that people say behind, you know, an internet keyboard, like, you're not even ever saying that out loud to a friend. And instead, you feel like you are allowed to say it into a keyboard, and it's on the internet. And it's really interesting when you turn those people in, so to speak. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, some dude was harassing some person online. It may have been a dude, another dude. It may have been a woman. And he had his company in his bio. And I just tweeted at the company like, hey, this guy's yours. And then someone tweeted back at me like, oh, you're going to throw the guy under the bus? Like, he just threatened to... I don't remember exactly what this guy did, but kill, rape, like these kinds of things happen all the time on the internet. And somehow they're dismissed as not real people. They're just internet people. So Bomani talked a lot about that and how dumb that is. And that's obvious to anybody with a soul or a brain. And this is all, of course, in response to the PSA that Sarah Spain and Julie DeCaro made. And it was powerful. It was poignant. It was really uncomfortable to watch. I couldn't watch all of it. It was that uncomfortable. And, that, you know, that's kind of the point is to make you uncomfortable. But I follow enough women on Twitter, sports Twitter specifically, that I see this stuff frequently enough that I didn't need to know it. Ex- like, I didn't, I didn't need some kind of PSA to know it existed. A lot of people did. This was eye-opening to a lot of people. I'm really glad that Sarah, someone who's been on my shows before, and Julie, whose stuff I've read before is very excellent, um, that they did this because this was eye-opening to a lot of people. Not to me. I knew this stuff happened. So I tweeted out and Bomani's take on it. Um, and it was really interesting because basically Bomani says, we as men need to speak up for women because a lot of men won't listen to the women speaking up for themselves. And for some reason, instead of the reaction of like a chorus of amens was, oh, I wish the messenger was different. What? Like, people feel so strongly about Bomani Jones that your response to someone saying, we as men should speak up for women because a lot of men won't listen to the women who are speaking up for themselves, were, I wish someone else said that. You're missing the point. And Bomani, later in the clip that I played, or later, I guess, beyond expanded out in the clip, uh, in the segment from which I played that clip, even says, like, there are times in his life, and he uses the club example, like, if you're a, woman, if you're a dude at a club and you go try to pick up a, a girl, and she says no, and you try harder, and she says no, and then you keep trying, and then she's like, yo, I got a boyfriend, and then you go, oh, okay. Like, oh, so you respect the boyfriend, but not her? Not her wishes? And Bomani says, I've been guilty of that at times. So I think he's a great messenger in this case because he's able to do some self-examination. And just the fact that the reaction to that tweet and me sending it out, and look, I've, I'm not always Bomani's biggest fan. I respect Bomani Jones a lot because he's freaking brilliant. He thinks differently about sports. I like people that think differently about sports, not people that talk differently about sports because sometimes those people don't think. Bomani thinks. I appreciate that, even if I think sometimes he comes to conclusions that I don't agree with. 
um, and at times can handle people in ways that are dismissive and, and rude or disrespectful um, if you think manners exist on Twitter. And again, like these are all people and I don't necessarily snap at people as, as frequently as he does, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I've done it before. Like you want to come talk to me, like you made that choice and how I respond is, is up to me. Um, so I thought it was interesting that multiple people, um, and I'm not talking like 20, but like a two or three said, I basically said, I don't like Bomani so much and kind of think he's a jerk, but this is spot on. That wasn't the response. Instead, it's just complete dismissal of the message because of the messenger. And that to me is backwards and interesting and weird. And I don't understand it. I mean, I get it. It's one of those things where I get it, but you're kind of part of the problem. And I don't know how to flip that self-awareness. Um, you know, I, I had a back and forth with a couple of people that responded to that tweet and was basically going like, yeah, I know he's not the perfect messenger, but that's the point. But we're not talking about like Johnny Cochran using OJ Simpson, uh, to make a point about the Los Angeles police being racist in the early nineties and getting OJ off of murder in the process. Nobody died here. And certainly Bomani hasn't killed anyone, but he, he's saying that we should stop people on Twitter who are threatening to kill female journalists, not even for doing their job, but basically for existing. Not, not necessarily for doing their job in a way that people don't like, but because they exist. Threats of death, rape. And I hope your boyfriend beats you with a baseball bat. Like that's, that's Bomani saying that we should police that better. And your response is, I don't like that he's saying that. That's weird. That's wrong. Bluntly, that's dumb. I don't get it. Craig Hoffman. Well, I can officially say that without question, he's the best radio beat reporter on the Redskins beat. Because he's now the only one. Because I don't exist. Uh, Brian McNally, he was probably that anyway. Uh, he's been doing it for a long time. Uh, he does a great job for 106.7 The Fan. Uh, Brian, appreciate you uh, you hopping on here. Obviously, this is fun because we never could have done this uh, when I was working for this your competition station, my former station. Uh, so good to chop it up with you in a place that people can hear it as opposed to the, the fun discussions in the media room is, is fun. Uh, and hopefully people will enjoy. Uh, so I talked about this a little bit last week, obviously, when it happened. Uh, but I'm just curious, as someone who is still locked into everything Redskins every day and who still sees everything that happens in the NFL through that eye, when Josh Norman gets cut by Carolina, what's your reaction? Yeah, I was in uh, I was in Philly, I think. It was right before the Caps were going to play the Flyers in game. I want to say it was game four, right? So Wednesday night. And, uh, and I saw that tweet. I'm sure it was an Adam Schefter tweet or something coming across. And you just go... Oh, uh, okay. What does this mean for the team I cover? And right. I think instantly, knowing knowing how the Redskins have operated in the past, you would immediately go to, oh, they'd be all in. Uh, but knowing Scott McLuhan's kind of reluctance to dive into free agency, he kind of hesitated and said, I don't know, it kind of goes against the, the kind of professed plan and, and what he's been all about in, in his previous stops, what he learned in Green Bay, what he executed in San Francisco and Seattle. Um, and so you kind of had mixed feelings about it, but as you thought, and you looked at the need for the Redskins at corner, you kind of said to yourself, Craig, honestly, this, this is something I could see them 
trying to go after it. Well, what, what made me hesitant, too, though, was the financials. I didn't know how they would make it work, given they only had about $11 million in cap space, a little bit over that. So um, there were some reasons why you would thought it wouldn't happen. But, you know, the more you thought about it, the more it, it made some sense for them to at least take a run at them. I did not expect them to be that aggressive. Um, and they really went all out and made sure that he knew he was – uh, that was their number one target, and, and they did everything in their power to get him in-house and keep him there, and uh, obviously it worked out for uh, for both sides. Yeah, the old let's get him in for a visit and not let him leave trick is always a, a good one, um, and that worked for Norman. And since he's been there, you know, we've seen uh, videos and whatever and of him working out with the guys, and uh, obviously they've had some off-season workout stuff. You guys have been around. The media uh, has been around the building. What's What's been the early vibe on Josh Norman from Ashburn? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we haven't really had – we've only talked to uh, Ryan Kerrigan here uh, the first couple weeks of, of workouts, and that was before the Norman stuff broke. Uh, so we haven't really gotten a ton of player reaction yet. Um, but just, just monitoring social media and um, just seeing, seeing guys around town, you, you obviously get the sense most are, are completely on board. Um, I know maybe Bashad Breland had some – comments that he ran back on, on radio a couple of days ago but for the most part i think it's it's been overwhelmingly positive i mean players like it when uh when their gm and the front office go out and spend money and acquire talent um you know I talking to some former redskins today there's there's always the chance when you bring an outside guy in that it can create some issues in the locker room in terms of uh um you know why are you paying him and not me um there's obviously some issues here with how much you're paying the, the two wide receivers and whether they can bring either one of those guys back. You kind of, they have to kind of side eye that contract and say, well, I see where you want to spend your money. Um, so that can be an issue. Uh, but that, that vibe, you know, I, I think that applies to very few players for the most part, especially defensively guys are just happy to have the, the extra talent in the room, especially at a position of need. Um, and I'm sure offensively as well. I mean, unless you're a guy, a guy directly affected by the, the financials um, and unlikely to be back because of Josh Norman's signing, I think you're you're going to be all in on this signing. And uh, I think for the most part, Redskins players are. Well, I was going to ask you about that later, but we'll just get to it right now. Um, where, where are we with Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson? I had heard earlier in the offseason they had already started talking to Jackson about an extension that would bring his cap hit down um, but extend him out, and that Pierre Garçon was going to be asked to do something similar and that he was going to say no and he might not be back. Where are we with those two guys? Yeah, I mean, I think with Pierre, it's just not in really in the cards. I haven't heard anything on – on them wanting to do that, there's, it seemed like every offseason in the last couple of years that's been uh, an issue just because of his cap hit is, is so high up around uh, up at $10 million, I think. Um, and that whether the interest was really just not on either side or just the player side, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but it, it certainly seems like he's less likely to do that. Deshaun Jackson, I mean, look, there's some he's – a, he's a difficult skill set. You can probably find another guy who does what Pierre does. Uh, even in the draft, um, it's a lot harder to find someone who does what Deshaun does. He's such a unique talent. Um, you know, you, you can argue who has the bigger impact. I mean, certainly Pierre is settled in at about a 70 catch a season guy who will make the tough catches and, um, you know, make, get the tough first downs. And, and Deshaun is the, the Ferrari that, uh, you break out when you need a 60 yard home run. And that's how it's kind of played out the last two years. Um, you know, just personality-wise, you would think 
Pierre is kind of the more Scott McLuhan style player, Craig. I think you would agree with that, right? That, uh, like yeah, Deshaun, largely. I think yeah, I, I mean, think Pierre was more of a pain in the butt behind the scenes than people would realize because everyone talks about how much of a pain in the butt Deshaun is. But when it comes to being in between the lines on game day, yeah, Pierre Garcon embodies what McLuhan looks for, sure. And then Deshaun is, is you know, we got the whole offseason stuff, and he, he wasn't there early last week for weightlifting, was still out in Cali. Um, which is fine. It's his right if he doesn't want to show up to these voluntary things, but it, it caused an issue last year. Guys, some guys didn't care, but some guys were kind of resentful of it. So um, I think with Deshaun, I think with both guys, you, you face a similar problem. You're, you're getting a 30-year-old receiver. How far down the road do you want to kick a contract, and how low can you get that cap number? Uh, I can't see both of them doing it. I could see one of them doing it and bringing him back because it's going to be tough to replace two guys of that caliber. Um, especially even if you devote a draft, a high draft pick this year to, to a receiver, you know, you got to coach that guy up. You have to hope that you know, receivers have such a high miss rate uh, in the, in the first couple rounds. It's, it's difficult to judge them sometimes. Um, so all that stuff kind of plays their long story short. I, I, I don't, it's possible neither one of them is back next year. Um, I know Scott said they had a plan to bring, bring both, uh, keep both in the fold, but, you know, that's, that's easier said than done when your cap space is so constrained. Yeah, well, it's, e- it's easy to say on his part. It's it's a little bit harder to get them to actually do it. Um, the other guy who gets directly affected by this in some way, and it could be he's not back, it could be a change in position, um, it could just be he's now the number two corner, um, is Chris Culliver. What, what are you hearing on him? Because I had heard that, you know, as much as they liked some of the competitive stuff that he brought to the field last year, the practice field in particular, um, that he, he was part of that culture change, that there was also some stuff they didn't love from him. Um, at times, he could be kind of a pain in the butt at times. Uh, and then obviously, more, more due to injury than anything else, the production wasn't where they wanted. Um, now you hear rumblings that he could go to safety because um, they kind of need some some depth there. Or they definitely need some depth there. And Breland was so good last year on the outside. I'm not sure that you want to move him back in um, and have that much invested in or th- those three guys at corner. So what's what's the word that you're hearing on what happens to Chris Culver? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, you, you can't get enough talent at corner, Craig. So I, I okay. think well, they learned that think last that... year. <laughs> They, they, got, yeah, right. they got lucky bringing in guys like Blackman that were awesome. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, they kind of learned their lesson there. So to just say, oh, you know what, <clears throat> you replaced him, so you're all good. You know, if it's if that's a cap decision, I get it. Um, but I, I think McLuhan at this point is leaning toward, you know, you bring the guy back, and then you have three good corners, and you can kind of adjust as necessary and kind of insure yourself against further injury. Now, part of that is still – when does Culliver get back? Did he get back in October? Did he get back on the field in training camp? Um, that was a Thanksgiving Day knee injury. So uh, you're going to be paying a, a premium cap hit, I mean, a, a high cap hit, given what you just gave Josh Norman, um, possibly for not a full season of Chris Culliver. That's not ideal. And then you have to ask yourself, how good will he be? I mean, can he come back? Sometimes it takes guys a couple months. Sometimes it takes guys, uh, you know, a full season before they're back to their old self. So, um, a lot of questions there with him. I, I still, I would still think, from what I'm hearing, that he would be back, uh, and and they'll just they'll take the you know there are other ways for them to clear some cap space. They don't necessarily have to get rid of him, uh, and then after that they can revisit whether he's back the following season. But I think this year at least 
you want to have all three of those guys on the field at some point if you can if you can pull it off. Yeah, it's interesting. He's got the physical attributes that he could play safety, but you know his best stuff is you know physical, in your face, man to man defense and that you don't do as a safety so i have no idea what they do with him but they'll figure it out also breland was better outside last year than he was inside he moved inside at times um and a lot you know early in the year when he was inside the little bit that he did before he permanently moved out that wasn't as good as he was outside um so we'll see how that winds up playing out um all right so this is a question i've been asked a lot about the cowboys over the years as i've done interviews i actually got asked it the other day a buddy of mine had me on and uh, it was asked me about this. The dynamic in the Cowboys draft room is always weird because you've got coaches, a scouting staff, and then you've got this incredibly loud voice that can override them all in the executive wing, so to speak, of Jerry Jones. And obviously Stephen Jones is a part of that too. When the Cow- With the Redskins draft room, how does that break down? Is it, in the end, ultimately – Scott McLuhan not really even listening to anybody else? Does Jay Gruden and the coaching staff or do Jay Gruden and the coaching staff have input? Is there any kind of executive input from Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen? How is the Redskins draft room going to work on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Yeah, from what I've been able to piece together, and obviously we don't don't have 100% confirmation on how it works, but just talking to enough people, you get a a general sense of of how they do things. Bruce, uh, Bruce will run the run the phones. Bruce is the man. You know, if they're if they're making trade negotiations, they want to trade up. Bruce is the guy making the call um, and kind of uh, trying to uh, you know trying to make the make the offer. Hey, we'll do this for this. What do you think about this? And whether it's accepted or not, they kind of go back and forth with teams as the uh, as the draft progresses. I think at, at one point in the off season, McLuhan called called Bruce Allen a, a magician when it came to that. They're very good at, at getting in there and uh, dealing with other executives and GMs and figuring out what kind of deal would work for both teams. Um, with Scott, he's, he's a consensus builder, Craig, so he's, he's not discounting at all. Um, uh, what The input from his scouts, now it took him a year. I, I don't know if last year was different because he didn't know the scouts that well. He kept pretty much everybody uh, and obviously just wasn't quite sure going into it, um, you know, philosophically what the match would be. You know, you have to learn as an exec, you have to learn what your scouts like, kind of what they, what they tend to prefer. And then when they oversell you on things, when they undersell you on things, um, you know, Scott watches the tape too. So he's got his own strong opinions and obviously a long track record. So he's kind of evaluating the, the scouts um, coaching staff. I don't think, when you bring guys in for a visit, you get you get kind of the coaching staff's opinion. But I don't think in terms of evaluation, in terms of what a guy could be, I don't think Scott takes that stuff very seriously. Um, coaches coach for a reason. They're not GMs. They're not scouts. Uh, and so I don't know how heavy the input is. You, you take their – Scott's very much a consensus builder. You take their input, um, but you, you weigh things differently. And I think he's going to weigh what the scouts say you know, above necessarily what a coach says. Um, so that all those guys are in the room, but, but the, the advantage the Reds can have now is they don't have that strong executive who can come in and say, just squash everybody's plan. Scott's much more of a consensus builder, takes all the information in, 
uh, and then then makes the decision and, and goes in the direction he wants to go. Yeah, and I like that, and that's the best way to do it. And it's I think some fans hate it, um, and it's funny how it manifests itself in other ways in organizations. Uh, you think of the play calling with the Redskins, like that's kind of what it was in a weird way. It's yeah, Jay's got input, Sean's got input, Bill Callahan's got input, Sean being Sean McVay, the offensive coordinator, like they they all kind of had put their experiences and their football minds together and tried to come up with the best game plan possible. And for some reason that drove people nuts. Like sometimes there are, there is a such thing as too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, but sometimes it's good to collaborate too. And I think as even more so in the draft than on a play calling situation, um, the collaboration's good. So as that crew all collaborates together, who do they want? And I'll open this up to not just who they may pick, but who could trigger a trade that they like either up or down? Who do they want to be available for them as they come up on the board? That That is the question. Scott hinted at that at various interviews throughout the offseason. Um, I think he did one with, uh, was it Jason Cole, a Bleacher Report, maybe? Yeah. Had one yeah. where he was mo- most explicit, <clears throat> where he said something of, of the sort that he kind of hinted that he knew who his guy was. That was Yeah, he actually did. Yeah, he flat out said, I have a guy. <laughs> I have a guy. So who that I that I don't know. I can't answer who yeah. is that. You can kind of base it on um, track record. Yeah, and we know that guy will be a football fit. player. He'll definitely be a football player. He'll play the sport of football. He won't be a hockey player, I don't think. I don't know. Uh, hockey player mentality to, will work just fine for Scott. It's kind yeah. of the same thing that he looks for. So it's interesting. So is Reggie Ragland, right, from Alabama, fits that mold right. of, uh, of a McLuhan player. Obviously, there are issues with him in coverage. Uh, you know, not sure... I think a lot of scouts are pretty confident he can make up for it with his instincts and his football smarts, but that's still an issue. But, like I said, I go back to it kind of fits how he describes his prototypical player. Uh, Jaron Reed from Alabama, same way. So, on the on the surface, I, I go with guys like that. Um, but then, you know, I, I don't know. I, there's certainly, look, if, if I, I've said this before, but let's say Paxton Lynch falls to them, right, at 21. Right. Um, you know, there's certainly other. They're certainly probably not going to take him, but that gives you a chance, as, as you said, kind of who would fall to them that they would be pleased with. If, if Paxton Lynch is on your board, you can kind of auction him off to Dallas, maybe right with that second round pick. San Diego with that second round pick. The Browns have a bunch. You know, if, if they don't go quarterback, who knows what what they're doing? But um, you know, if teams early in that second round need a quarterback and feel like Paxton Lynch may not fall to them, uh, he's certainly visited Dallas enough. <clears throat> They've been heavily kind of in on him. Um, you know, if that those kind of trades are intriguing to me, and I think he's the kind of player that could kind of create the uh, the auction mentality that will get McClellan the extra picks that he wants, and maybe then the Redskins would be okay trading down and maybe taking one of the safeties or, or another, you know, an- another kind of player that isn't much different in talent level than what they would have gotten at 21 anyway. Are you ready for this professional radio tease? Ready? Here we go. Let's do it. You want to know which safety Brian McNally's talking about? Go to his Twitter page, at bmcnally14. That's M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, no E, 14. And you'll be able to check it out because he wrote about it for his job. <laughs> Appreciate it. Boom. Someone hire me. That's awesome. Craig Hoffman. Tim McMahon covers the Mavericks for ESPN. An old friend did some radio together down at ESPN radio in Dallas. Always good to catch up, man. Um, interesting 
end to the Mavericks season. Uh, comments by by uh, Mark Cuban. Uh, always the interesting aftermath of how Rick Carlisle sees things. I want to start with the Cuban comments, though, and a very simple question that you probably don't have an answer to, but your guess is as good as any. Uh, what was Mark Cuban thinking when he said Russell Westbrook wasn't a superstar? I've got a conspiracy theory there. There's two of them. Actually, one is that he was just trying to get in Russ's head to see if he would go hero ball in game five and maybe help the Mavs out. Yeah, that certainly did work. Dude went to 36 efficient points, uh, 12 assists, nine rebounds, or maybe it was 12 rebounds, nine, whatever. He dominated the game. That's not what I think he was really trying to do. I think he was trying to plant seeds for a, hair, a Hail Mary summer swing at Kevin Durant. I didn't think that worked either. But, uh, you know, basically, I say, hey, a superstar is a guy who's worth 50 plus wins, no matter where he goes, basically telling KD, look, Russ ain't helping you that much. You guys are winning 57 games this year. You're worth at least 50 on your own. You know, do the math. Um, and maybe just try to drive a little bit of, uh, you know, create a little bit of friction there. But, like I said, I, I don't think that that worked at all. And now, Katie might have been putting on a little bit of a show with he's an idiot, let me handle this one for you, Russ, and all that. Uh, but the simple fact is um, there's no way that Katie can look at his situation in Oklahoma City and think he'd be better off in Dallas. It's just it's not possible. And if he is looking to leave OKC, he's going to have a much better alternative to the Mavericks. So it'd be a Hail Mary, but I do think that was Cuban's motivation. And you know what? Don't ever rule out just a real plain and simple uh, Mavic season going down in flames. Cuba wants people to talk about something else. Here, let me throw out something. I'll get a lot of attention. Yeah, that's that's a, at least a, a theory I can buy into of being smart. Because uh, if you know anything about Durant, like he and Westbrook are tight. He's pretty loyal to his guys. I mean, he was very complimentary uh, throughout everything that happened with Scott Brooks and with Scott Brooks over the years because that was his guy. Do um, you think the, the Mavs wind up even getting in the room with Durant this summer? And if not, is this the reason why? That they don't even get a meeting? Uh, well, I mean, maybe they could have gotten a courtesy meeting before, but it would have been probably a waste of everybody's time. I I put their chances of getting Durant at sub 1%. So, why waste time with me? I mean, if you're the Mavericks, you have to hear no from him. He's that great of a player to where if there's even a one in a million chance, you got to make sure that it, that chance is extinguished. But I doubt they end up with a meeting. I definitely don't think they've got, uh, yeah, put it this way, it's not only a full court heave, but they're throwing the ball over their heads with a hand. Uh, with a hand in their face. I mean, this is there's a zero chance. And, you know, the thing about it is, if DeAndre would have followed through on his commitment, I'd be telling you, I think the Mavericks had a real good chance to rain. I think there would be, if not front runners, squarely in uh, his thinking. But as it stands now, I mean, you go buy a lottery ticket, you got a better chance. Right. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um Interesting exit interview comments that I saw from Chandler Parsons. And, and for those that don't know, Tim has a better relationship with Chandler Parsons than anybody else in the media. Um, so I'll trust you and your kind of feel on this from what you've talked with Chandler, not just now, but you did a piece with him a couple of weeks ago uh, on his future. It seemed like he is ready to come back. And some of the comments that I saw, you know, talking about the recruitment of Dwight Howard already. Obviously, he told you a couple of weeks ago, I can't recruit anybody till I know I'm back. So where are we with Chandler Parsons and his uh, desire to leave or not Dallas? 
Well, he, he reiterated the same thing yesterday. You know, he said again, obviously, I, I can't recruit somebody if I'm not sure I'm going to be back. But this is his preference. He wants to be in Dallas. He's made that clear. But, uh, you know, if he didn't say it yesterday, he's at least made it clear behind the scenes that, you know, his agent will continue to. It won't be at a discount. He thinks he can command a max contract in this market. Um, I don't know that the Mavs are real eager to max him out, but if they want to keep him, and let's be honest, they don't have better alternatives, I believe that's what it's going to end up taking. So do they want to haggle on price, or do they want to get him done, get him on the recruit trail, and see who else he can help get here this summer? Is he worth spending that extra to have as a recruiter, just get it done immediately? Uh, my guess is there will be some sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod in place well before July 1st, on him, but we'll see. Okay. Um, if Parsons does come back and then the recruitment of Dwight Howard begins, who do you think of the Mavs brain trust of Cuban, Donnie Nelson, and Rick Carlisle? We'll, we'll say that's the brain trust. Leave Parsons out of it, even though Chandler would say that he's part of the brain trust. Um, who in that triumvirate? is going to want Dwight Howard and who might push back on it? Uh, I think there's pushback from all of them. I think Parsons is trying to convince all of them and uh, a guy named Dirk who's got a little bit of weight here with this franchise. Just a touch. That Dwight Howard is the uh, is the way to go, and I, I think there's a little bit of pushback from everybody. I've been told the Mavs will not come close to max on Dwight Howard. Uh, now, his max is, you know, we're talking 30-plus a year, the super max. Um, will they go to 20-ish? You know, would that be enough? What's the market going to be for Dwight? Would, would a Charlotte, would an Atlanta come close to Max? We'll all see. But I seriously doubt that uh, the Mavericks get in a bidding war for him, much less win a bidding war for him. And my understanding is Dirk has major, major reservations about Dwight Howard. Obviously, the last two years in Houston, for the most part, have been a disaster for Dwight. Uh, he's got health issues he's got motivational issues i think the health issues a lot of times are directly related to the motivational issues uh, think about how things went for dwight in la when he was with steve nash think about the last couple of years in houston when jason terry was there think it maybe dirk has heard a few stories um so i i, I think it's not just chandler parsons trying to convince Mark cuban that that uh they need to make a push for dwight but it's also getting Dirk on board, and I think that might be much easier said than done. I don't expect White Howard to be their plan A. He might be Chandler Parsons' plan A, but uh, he's down to tech order decision makers behind at least Cuban and uh, and uh, Dirk. And that's, again, assuming that the Parsons deal is get done. So what is their plan A? Uh, I don't think they know yet. I think <laughs> that is to be determined. And, and I'm serious about that. Uh you know, do do they want to say, hey, Dirk, we want you to play a lot of minutes at center. Um, maybe even come off the bench as a sixth man in year 19. Um, if that's the case, Nicholas Petun will make a ton of sense. Harrison Barnes will make a ton of sense. Those are guys who I believe are going to get max contracts in this market. You know, not the, they're not super max guys. They're not 40-plus per year. But I think to get their 20-plus you know, per year, given that two-thirds of the league has max space. You know, Parsons would love to play primarily power forward, so that would make sense uh, from that standpoint. You know, would they be better off? I keep asking Hassan Whiteside. I keep being told that he's a, a potential Larry Sanders. In other words, you're, you're buying him out midway through the contract. They've got major reservations there. Would it, would it, would it make more sense for the Mavericks instead of chasing 
one guy plus trying to you know get a point guard on a relative cheap, whether it's bringing back D Will or whatever. Would it make more sense to split their cap space up uh, between a couple guys? You know, maybe get a just for example, a Festus Azili and a Courtney Lee or Azili and uh, uh, Kent Bazemore, or maybe Joaquin Noah is the center that we're talking about. You know, I, I think Azili is actually a guy who would make a lot of sense to them. He's restricted. Golden State's got the right to match, but you know, if we're talking about him in the $12 million a year range, it's a lot to pay a guy who's never been a center in the NBA, but hey, the way the cap is going, what looks crazy is going to be reasonable, and he's young, he's big, he's athletic, I think he'd be a great fit for the Mavericks. Then add some, you know, add a starting quality wing, whether the guy ends up starting or, or coming off the bench. And, you know, I, I think that might be their actual best case scenario. But again, I think it's actually most of the time at this point of the year, I firmly believe the Mavs know exactly what plan A is. Based on everybody I talk to, maybe they're uh, not telling me everything, but I don't think they know plan A at this point. That's really interesting because. There's no doubt that, you know, some of the iterations of whoever, you know, pick two of, of what you just said, like Rick Carlisle could turn that into a 50-win team pretty easily because he's Rick. And Dirk still has something left, and if Parsons is healthy and Matthews should be better, you know, play more like he did in the second half of the year this year as he gets farther removed from the Achilles. Carlisle can turn that into a 50-win team, but they're not getting necessarily any closer to a championship which is always what plan a has been in the past when they've swung as big as they and hard as they possibly can well, plan a is kevin durant then yeah well <laughs> now i mean seriously that, uh, hey what the perfect summer for the mavericks they signed kevin durant sure what are the odds of that happening minuscule so when i'm talking plan a i'm talking about things where july 1st is actually a possibility and again we you know we can talk about kind of the premier wings that are out there that aren't the same LeBron or KD. Um, or we can talk about, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it ends up being Dwight, but boy, there, that would be a shift in the thinking uh, from this point right now. And they would have to get Dirk on board with that. And again, I, my understanding with Dirk is it's not to the point with Dwight where he would say absolutely no, hell no, no way. But man, he he has reservations, significant reservations. As he should. I think I could talk myself into Dwight, you know, in a similar role of what Tyson Chandler used to do as from a basketball sense, but the other stuff, including, frankly, obviously the medical, um, that scares the hell out of you with Dwight, uh, both the mental and yeah, the physical. And, and, right, especially if you're, you know, if this is a four-year deal where you're, right. you're nine, uh, a nine-figure contract. And, you know, from a pure basketball standpoint, Good Dwight is a great fit next to Dirk. I mean, he is a rim protector. He's a dominant rebounder. He's a lob threat. He is everything from a physical standpoint, athletic standpoint, that you want playing next to Dirk and would be a perfect fit. How often do you see good Dwight these, these days? Do you, is it even for games, or is it maybe for yeah, a couple possessions see, here, right. a couple possessions there? You see there? it a half on occasion, but and what they have to figure out and what every other team in the league has to figure out is that because is that because Dwight hates it in Houston and he's mentally checked out, or is it because he can't do it anymore? And he hasn't been yeah, in a situation and, and, he's liked in three years, four years. Yeah, and, and, and what Parsons will tell him is, hey, look at Dwight's numbers when I was with him in Houston. That's the best year that he's had since he left Orlando by far. You know, I can get to this guy. He would be motivated playing with me. You know, he, I, I, I can get in his head and keep him on the right path. But 
you know, the question you guys is, okay, adversity is going to hit at some point. When that hits, does he check out on you? Does he go through the motions on you like he's done in, in Houston for the last two years, like he did his entire season in L.A.? And so, you know, uh, money, Mark Cuban ain't trying to pay the guy max. That's going to be a major factor. And Dwight's motivation, their concerns about that, especially when it comes to, to Dirk. Uh, approving of it, and, and Dirk absolutely does have the right to veto here. Um, uh, those are major, major factors, and at this point, I will be surprised if Dwight ends up being plan A. Yeah, no, I would too, but it's it's interesting. Uh, we'll leave it there. One last quick thing. Um, if the Clippers or Cavs try to blow it up, and all of a sudden there's a Blake Griffin, Kevin Love, Chris Paul, or Kyrie Irving sweepstakes, do the Mavs have any way of getting in that, or do they just not have the pieces? I just don't see the pieces. I mean, you have to you'd have to explain to me how they could make more attractive deals than oh, say the Boston Celtics, who have a ton of draft picks, including big time premium picks, and you know, have a guy like Jay Crowder, who's proven to be a quality NBA starter that in today's NBA has an extremely team friendly deal, four more years at seven mil per. I mean, what what kind of package could the Mavericks put together that could even compete? with something that Boston uh, could put together. And, and I'm throwing the Celtics out there as, as kind of the, the primary. Uh, I, you know, if I'm trying to blow a team up, like you said, Kevin Love has always been loved with Boston rumors. Or if it's Blake Griffin, I'm getting Danny Ainge on the phone because he's got by far the most assets. I, I don't see the assets that the Mavs have. I mean, Justin Anderson, he's got value now, but it's going to take a lot more than Justin Anderson to get in those kind of conversations. Yeah, that's what I thought, but I figured I'd ask, and if you're looking for me to explain it, uh, that's why I asked you the question. I can't. Uh, Tim McMahon, follow him on Twitter, at ESPN underscore McMahon. Always good to catch up, man, uh, and hopefully we will down the road. Have fun figuring out what plan A is. Good hearing from you all. Craig Hoffman. Thanks to Brian. Thanks to Tim. Uh, Again, Damon Amendolara already booked for Friday's show as we recap the NFL draft, so look for that. Again, all the links always on Twitter, at Craig Hoffman, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Craig Hoffman ESPN. Let's do something that is times, and by at times, I mean all times challenging for me. Do math uh, in the form of this case of money. Let's talk not my money, not much of that. That's easier to count, not, not high numbers. Uh, let's talk about Malachi Richardson's money. Malachi Richardson is a, just finished his freshman year, I guess is finishing academically speaking, his freshman year at my alma mater, Syracuse University. He is considering coming out in the NBA draft. Malachi Richardson is probably the fastest riser in the NBA draft right now. I know everyone's attention is on the NFL draft Thursday again. Talking about that, less than five minutes with Brian McNally of 106.7 The Fan, if you're a Redskins fan, uh, which many of you listening likely are. Um, But in the NBA draft, which I always keep an eye on, Malachi Richardson, because of the run Syracuse went on, in which he played an enormous part to the Final Four, is probably the highest riser in this draft. This kind of happened a couple years ago with Deion Waiters, too, out of Syracuse, where, um, you know, a team makes a run... um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's a big game. Dion had a really good NCAA tournament. And then team scouts went back and looked at the tape and went, wow, this guy's got some real talent. 
and flashes didn't play as much and as he gets older this the, the pieces the raw materials here could turn into a really good basketball player that was the thought on Dion. that's why he shot up draft boards he went wound up going number four Richardson's not going that high but if he somehow sneaks into the, even the back end of the lottery we're talking you know 13 14 14 is the last pick in the lottery you know the 12 to 14 12 to 18 range like that's way different than where we were uh before Syracuse went on this run where he was going to be a second round picker undrafted so he's got a decision to make all of a sudden do I come out do I not and I think Malachi also was in a similar situation as Dion a couple years ago where Dion could have come out after his freshman year and maybe gotten picked and he wasn't ready yet um and and for him going back to school was going to mean him being a lot better draft pick the following year and for Richardson I think if he goes back Syracuse A would be gross like selfishly as a Syracuse fan Malachi please come back that's I mean, any Syracuse fan is going to say that. Um, although I, you know, I've got the, I, I, I'm far too logical for that. Like, go do you, kid. Whatever, whatever is best for you. And in figuring out what's best for him, if he's going to be a first round pick, sh- speaking strictly financially, even if he would be a top five pick next year because Syracuse would be really good and he would be their best player, he's better off leaving now. Is he going to make as much per year? No. But let's say Malachi Richardson is going to play basketball either collegiately or professionally for the next 11 years. Would you rather have 10 years of pro salary and one more in college or 11 years of pro salary? That extra year, you don't get it back on the back end. It's not like Malachi Richardson is destined for when he finishes college, whenever that is, an 11-year or a seven-year, or a 13-year NBA career. He's going to play till he's blank years old, and then his body's probably going to break down, and he's not going to be as good anymore, and nobody will want him, and he'll retire, because that's how this works. So as long as in that extra year, you make up the difference of your draft slot, and remember, this cap is exploding, and you get to... Um, big money, veteran money, a year faster because you came out a year earlier, then it makes financial sense to get out. Now, I think there is some nuance here. There is argument to be made. You go back, you become a better player, uh, and you're more mature and more ready when you come out, and you wind up having a better career, and maybe you make more money that way. Sure, possible. Also possible that you get drafted into a good situation and a good player development spot, and you become even better even if you don't play your rookie year than you would have as playing in college because you're playing against better competition you're getting better coaching it's great as the Syracuse coaching staff is it's not the NBA you're just getting trained for a different um a different game basically and you're also being able to dedicate your life fully to basketball as opposed to splitting between basketball and class as much as you want to laugh about student athlete it's kind of true um at least from a time commitment standpoint so For argument's sake, let's say Richardson is going to be the 18th pick this year. And I I texted with a buddy from ESPN, an NBA person who used to be a front office person, and he hooked me up with some numbers. Uh, These might be available, probably are somewhere on the internet, but I'm going based off what he told me. So 18th pick this year starts at $1.4 million, ability to get up to another 20% in bonus money. So let's say Richardson's that. He's at $1.4 million. If he was the fifth pick next year... He's $3.3 million. 
plus 20% potential and bonuses. So over the course of four years, that's an extra $2 million a year. That's $8 million. He can make that up in an extra year. All you got to do is on a one-year $8 million deal. Right now, everybody signed it for $1 million, or $8 plus million a year. If Richardson's going to be good at all, he's going to make $8 plus million annually um, for the rest of his career after he gets done with his rookie deal. Pretty easily. Because the salary cap is rising. The average NBA salary was already over $5 million per year a couple years ago, which was the highest in all of professional sports. Plus, you start making the money now. You get interested in, and, you know... I have no idea if Malachi Richardson is going to be smart with his money or not. A lot of NBA players aren't. There are those that are. And if he gets good financial advice, he could make that up even sooner, perhaps, with good investments. I don't know. The point is, more money is better than less money. Like If you want to take out some of the the 1.4s and the 3.3s and then try and project out um, how the contract looks down the line and, and all of that, at the end of the day... More money is better than less money. And you want to know how you get more money? You start earning it faster. And from a basketball standpoint, going back and becoming better is valid to a point, but I think it's also overblown every single year because development doesn't stop when you leave college. If there are maturity questions, I think that's a reason to go back. And I don't know enough about Malachi Richardson yet you know, I'll do more homework as we get closer to the NBA draft because I love the NBA draft. But I don't know enough about Malachi Richardson yet to know whether he should go back because of maturity. But when it comes to his slotting and where he's going to be picked, if he's going to be a first-round pick, it basically always makes sense to leave. And so he probably will. And that stinks for the Orange. It stinks for us Orange fans. But hopefully he's awesome in the NBA, and Syracuse is going to be good next year anyway. And go do you, kid. Like, go make your money. Who am I to tell you not to? Nobody. That's the answer. Who am I to tell you not to? Nobody. And neither is anybody else. Here's what I am. A guy who had an awesome Sunday. A really fun sports double. I was in New York City over the weekend and we'll end with this little fun anecdote because anecdotes are fun and this one has to do with sports. Um, I went to the Yankee game Sunday afternoon, Yankees raise. It was not competitive. Michael Pineda got just blasted, gave up five in the top of the first inning, all of which before we got to our seats. So we saw a game that was never competitive and then I saw a game that was dumb competitive at night made my way over to Brooklyn Barclays Center Islanders Panthers Islanders wind up winning it in double overtime to clinch the series so a walk-off goal uh their captain John Tavares actually scored both of their goals and his first one to tie the game to make to get to overtime in the first place was with a minute to go in the third period with an extra attacker right after the Panthers missed an empty netter that would have put them up to nothing. Super high drama. And so the comparison, the compare and contrast of the Yankee game versus the Islander game was humorous to me because 
I was I was a bit of a Yankee fan growing up. Um, some stages more passionately than others. Um, have since really grown out of it. Don't care. Yankees are good, great for them. If they're not, don't care. Never never invested in a hockey team emotionally. Um, I just I just I grew up in South Carolina. What do you want from me? Um, so the results didn't matter much to me, but it was interesting to the fans in the stadium how differently they felt at the two games at the Yankee game everybody in my section which we were sitting in the right field bleachers the right center bleachers which isn't where the the bleacher creatures live but it's the bleachers at Yankee Stadium Um, and that's a place that was once known for just a diehard hardcore fan super invested into every pitch and guess what on a Sunday in April early in the season when the Yankees are not expected to be a World Series juggernaut type of team, everybody was laughing at some high school kids who may have found their way to get some alcoholic beverages, uh, yelling at Brett Gardner, Hey, Sticks! Hey, Eleven! Yo, Brett! For three innings straight until Brett Gardner finally turned around, opened his glove as wide as he could, smirked and waved, and then turned around. The crowd erupted in joy. I think partially it was because the kids would finally shut up, but also because they had been victorious and it was entertaining. And that was fun. And it was it was just such a light-hearted atmosphere. No feelings of life or death at all. By the way, the kids also got Jacoby Ellsbury then in center and even got Carlos Beltran in right all the way. Actually, sorry, we were in the left center field bleachers. Uh, all the way over in right field, Carlos Beltran gave them a wave, a tip of the cap, and they were joyous. Then they tried for the infield, and that's where their joy ended. It was funny, um, but again, like, sideshow to the game. The Islander game? NHL playoffs? Whoa. And now it's interesting, the atmosphere there, because it was, I saw one Panthers fan. One. That was it. He got booed as he was walking through, otherwise I probably wouldn't have noticed him. But it was literally everyone, including me, because I was there with my diehard fan cousin and his mom and dad, my aunt and uncle, and they had an extra jersey, so I threw it on, fit in, be part of the crowd. Um, Everyone's there in Islander colors. When a lot of sweaters, um, you know, a lot of t-shirts, whatever, whatever Islander gear you had, it was on. And then there was the one Panthers fan. And so everyone in this arena is living and dying with this team. First period, they come out, they're the better team, but uh, they can't finish, take, can't take advantage. Panthers do get one, and everyone's kind of like, oh, okay, we're, we're still all right, though. We're playing better. Second period, they come out. It's one of the worst periods of hockey you'll ever see. They were garbage, but stayed at one nothing. Third period, uh, a mix of the two until they finally are able to put one through with a minute to go and get the game to overtime. Overtime was pretty even. Double overtime, they finally get their chance, um, and and they take it or they they finally take advantage and uh, and are able to win. But it was just so interesting being someone in the middle of that who is not invested in the result, as everyone around me, including my cousin, just said afterwards he felt like he blacked out when the the game winner went in. And just being kind of swept up in it. It was fun to be a fan because so often in the media, I mean, there are definitely members of the media who are still very much fans, but man, for me, 
it's much more an analytical experience. It's much more appreciating the game for what it is um, and, and looking at how it unfolds. And I think, A, being with so many people, both that I knew and didn't know because everyone in that arena was so invested um, and so blatantly invested, I was surrounded by that feeling of investment, and that swept me up. But also, hockey's a sport I don't know enough about to break down, so that probably helps too. I can get lost in my own little world at a basketball game because I'm looking at things that no one else is looking at. Same thing at a football game. Hockey? Hey, where's the puck? I'm not. Hey, look, they're changing again. There's. I, I realize there is strategy behind it. I just don't know what it is. But I thought it was interesting. The other interesting thing, or I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a lot of fun. Like I enjoyed that. I would love to be able to do that more. To just go sit with fans and be swept up. Um, and you know, you get invested in teams that you cover because your life, your livelihood, your life depends on their success and failure, but that's a different than even the fan. That's just a blind, I mean, there are fans, my cousin probably included that wouldn't sleep if the Islanders lost that game. That's crazy. I would have slept just fine. Like a baby. Um, I was amazed at how everybody was talking about hockey, 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 like, there's no checking your phone to see what's going on in something else. Like, everyone was completely locked into the game. That's cool. That's how sports should be. I wish more sporting events were like that. The one diversion people did have, which was hysterical, was Bruce Springsteen. Bruce had played a show the night before at Barclays Center. He was playing the next night. And at one point, someone in front of us basically yelled at the Islanders that their performance, this was during that second period where they stunk, their performance was not worthy to be in the same arena that Bruce would be performing in tomorrow night. That correlation was hysterical in so many ways because it is so New York, New Jersey, Long Island that I can't even stand it. Um, The weirdest thing for me was afterwards in the like the stairwells when all of a sudden these rangers suck chants break out the rangers had lost the night before their series over and i get that they're rivals but you just advance to the next round of the playoffs and the first thing you think about is ah screw the other guy that's bizarre to me that your first instinct is not yay my own success but haha the failure of my in-state, in-city, rival, brother, whatever. I thought that's bizarre. I don't know anywhere else in sports where that exists. Like, you might, the Yankees may hate the Red Sox, and Duke may hate UNC. Um, but if UNC, or Duke wins the national, like, Duke fans undoubtedly laughed at North Carolina fans for losing the national title game. But when Duke won it the year before, their first thought wasn't, ha-ha, North Carolina didn't. It's, look how awesome we are. So that little brother, and it's exactly what it is. Islanders fans feel like little brothers to Rangers fans. And it's a little brother complex, and it's, ha-ha, big brother, we did better than you. And it's like that is more meaningful than the accomplishment in itself. And I'm curious if they were to go on and, let's say they win the Stanley Cup, like, are, are you chanting, we want the cup, or we have the cup, or are you chanting, Rangers suck? It's quite. Maybe I'll ask my cousin. I just thought that was interesting, and figured I would share, because it is a unique 
place in sports. All right, that is this podcast. Uh, we will continue to do them in this style. We'll have some fun guests. Life will be grand, and we'll talk about sports twice a week. Uh, keep reading the blog as well. Be on the lookout for a uh, new formatting of everything soon. We're going to have a website, uh, and I don't know why I keep saying we. I. It's just me. I'm here. You're there. You're listening. But now you're done. Thanks. Goodbye.